Welcome to Encounter, the podcast from the Wolf Institute that gets down and granular with questions of religion and society. I'm Ed Kessler, founder, director, and this time we'll be discussing the troubled mind. How can we relate ancient ideas of madness to post-Freudian concepts of mental illness? The World Health Organization states that depression is the leading cause of ill health and disability worldwide. At a time when mental illness is on the increase, can religion still help, or has it been superseded by medical science? Since the devil is in the detail, can religious people calm a troubled world, or is their faith too troubled? Hi, hi. I'm doing all right. Hi, Ed. Hi, Ray. Looking good. You too. Danielle. Hey, Ed. Good to see yes. you. No, it's not fair having all this drink around you. That's okay. Are you sure? Yes. Why are you not drinking? Of course. Yeah, I'm fasting today. Yeah. With me to discuss our troubled minds are Mark Strivens of Cambridge Street Pastors, Dunya Habash of the Wolf Institute, and Ruth Adams, a priest in the Diocese of Ely and a former trustee of Cogwheel, a Christian mental health charity. Ruth, can religious belief protect us against mental frailty, a bit like a vaccination? I don't think it can uh, protect us like a vaccination, Ed, but I think uh, certainly anything that adds to our resilience can help us with any aspect of our health. You know, we know that now. So that uh, if, a, if someone's faith is helping them to navigate the world, to understand who they are, who other people are, and it gives them ways to, to kind of uh, deal with some difficult emotions, and I think it could definitely help. Can it hinder? Yes, of course. Uh, particularly, I think, if uh, in people are prohibited from exploration, when we have questions, when we have doubts, it's very natural to be able to explore them, to play around with them. And if people are very doctrinaire or are receiving a sort of certainty and are not being allowed to question yet, for sure that will, that will definitely have an impact on people's mental health. Mark, is it exploration or is it just being honest? I think it's a bit of both. I think it's also, there's a level of fear in challenging accepted viewpoints. I would also say that one of the important things to me is the connectedness of faith groups that um, in an increasingly splintered and um, self-absorbed perhaps uh, society, the uh, interconnectedness in groups, uh, in faith groups, is really important in allowing people to explore and be honest about how they feel. Dunya, uh, what, what, what contribution as a lay person to this conversation can you bring to this question of faith and the troubled mind? I think faith can do three things for, for human well-being. Uh, it provides certainty, especially in a world that is more increasingly becoming uncertain and, and full of so much risk and all sorts of different things. It also provides community and I think a sense of purpose. And I think maybe one of, for me, as just you know a practicing Muslim and a lay person, I think the most important thing that, that my Islam gives to me on a daily basis is a sense of purpose, you know, a sense that I'm not working just to pay my rent, you know, I'm working for a bigger purpose. I'm trying to really contribute to, to humanity in some even small way every single day. And I think that's very important. It provides a certain kind of energy that, that I think is necessary in terms of making yourself get up in the morning every day. So for me, that's a very important part of my personal well-being. So I think faith can help in, in that sense. 
For me, I, I would agree with that very much. I think that was along the lines of what I was kind of alluding to. But also uh, thinking about Mark's point about connection, uh, one of the things I noticed when a community is functioning really well and when a worshipping community is safe, that quite often people, when they're very vulnerable, will feel like they can cry. And people have said to me, oh, this is a place where I can come to cry. Even if it's in the middle of um, worship music or just sitting in a quiet space that's kind of protected. And so it's like a sanctuary almost for if, if it's done well and if community is enabled. And I think for me that's where the connection is good. If people can find a connection with the place or with a, commun a religious community who will hold them in a troubled time. I mean, that's hugely valuable. I worry slightly about the language of certainty, though. Um, because sometimes when we're so certain about things, um, we're not really questioning those bigger issues, perhaps our vulnerabilities, our, our troubled minds. Do you know what I mean? I think so. And I think um, certainty is a, is a very interesting word, isn't it? Because when you hear it, we can think of all sorts of things. So when I heard certainty there, I was thinking that's, a, uh, that's about anxiety. <laughs> so, so that was how I understood it, the sort of having a foundation in life. Whereas certainty, which is a sort of doctrinaire, um, almost out from anxiety, clinging on to something because actually we, we don't know and we're, we're terrified, you know, that is very unhealthy, I think, and very I think so that, that brings us to another subject, this whole question of nuance of language and how we hear words. I think that's really, really interesting. Mark, your work as a street pastor brings you into contact with troubled people and troubled minds. Um, what have you learned in your ministry uh, to people of the street? Certainly the, there's no decrease in the incident of mental health and that many people seek, as they perhaps always sought, um, different ways of either drowning it out or compensating from it. I see no particular decrease in the use of drugs and alcohol within the demographic that we serve. And for some people, this is something that's a short-term crutch and for others, it becomes a long-term habit, which they use in order to drown out voices or experiences that are painful or they're unable to cope with. The communities that we see in there are very different from the communities that we've talked to in that they're very transient, quite superficial in many terms, often leaving people, in fact, vulnerable and on their own rather than bringing people together. And those vulnerable um, troubled people, what can you do as a man of faith to encourage and to uh, just help, I suppose? It's very interesting when we listen to, when, well, when we meet people and we uh, uh, encounter them, often they will unburden themselves on us because we're almost anonymous to them. Um, the fact that we aren't, don't represent perhaps even an authority figure uh, in their lives, um, they will tell us the most amazing things. And I think just merely that offering of listening to people and listening to what they have to say is in, in fact a gift in itself. You're listening to Encounter, the podcast from the Wolf Institute. My name is Ed Kessler, and with me today are Mark Strivens of Cambridge Street Pastors, Dunya Habash from the Wolf Institute and Ruth Adams, a former trustee of Cogwheel. Well, what is Cogwheel, Ruth? What does it do? Cogwheel was set up um, 30 years ago. In fact, it's our 30th anniversary coming up. Um, and it was set up by a, a Christian woman who felt that uh, there was a need for affordable counselling uh, for people in the city and that the churches could uh, come on alongside to actually, really for the common good. 
I think, um, to provide that. And so it, it, it does give that opportunity and 40% uh, of the clients can only give about 10 pounds a, 10 pounds a session. So although it's not free, it's hugely heavily subsidised and, and it does give people a chance to, for some long-term exploration with qualified uh, counsellors. But there's, there's no uh, Christian requirement to come, obviously. But is it a Christian initiative? Is it an initiative of faith or are you just providing the estate for psychotherapists and psychiatrists and psychologists to help? I think it's very founded, my experience as a trustee is very founded on faith and the idea of the common good, on the idea of prosperity of those around you and also the idea of fullness of life and a sense that actually um, people need to be journeyed with. So a bit like the street pastors actually, that same idea that somehow Christians are called to journey with uh, everyone. So it's like, like a vocation really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, there is there's certainly no sense from that the councillors have to be Christians or that the people coming have to be. Right. But right. the trustees are. So I know within within my own community, Jewish community, there's there's a lot of there's fear of Ill, mental ill health, uh, fear of that troubled mind, um, almost so sometimes a reluctance to acknowledge it or to push it away so we don't have to see it. I mean, is that also the case in the Muslim communities here? Is there a sort of reluctance sometimes to, or maybe it's part of the human condition, Dunya, that we don't really want to see that vulnerability in somebody else? Yeah, no, I think, I don't know about the Muslim community per se, but uh, the Syrian community, definitely, there is, there is this fear of mental illness. I mean, so much, it's so taboo that if your child you know, does exhibit signs or symptoms of things. I mean, you don't mention it to anyone. You don't take him to, I mean, the f idea of going to a therapist is just so foreign, you know, it's just something you have to deal with privately. Now, of course, those things are changing. And I think in my generation, definitely, especially growing up in the States, you know, being around Western medicine and a society that thinks differently about mental health, um, those ideas and attitudes have been changing a little bit, but it's still it's still very much taboo. And I think I, this is very unfortunate because I do believe that there is some scientific um, evidence, you know, that can help in in easing these symptoms that can be quite devastating for for human life and well-being. Well, absolutely devastating if you uh, experience somebody whose relative or partner or friend has committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, it's enormously damaging and that stays with somebody f forever, forever. Um, and I think we probably, each of us have had to deal with that. I'm sure Ruth as a, a minister of faith and Mark also dealing with the bereaved families of people who've committed suicide. How, how, how do you tackle that? What do you say in the, at, that, at that moment? I mean, actually, probably not much. <laughs> uh, that, that what you need to do is listen, because actually, when somebody has has killed themselves and ripped themselves out of their family, however much they felt themselves that they were doing something that was going to help their family, and usually people will think that actually it would be better for their family if they weren't there. Actually, the reality is that it causes massive waves of strong emotions, and so actually letting people talk about those emotions, I think, is the most important thing you can do, and of course. Uh, often when you're trying to prepare a funeral and you've got those l waves of emotions in any case it's it's quite tricky but so being very non-prescriptive actually and just allowing people to say how angry they are often anger is the first emotion that really comes forward and the church has, has developed a lot hasn't it mark in terms of its attitude um well, of course it's always the church in its diversity uh, in terms of its attitudes towards uh, suicide and mental ill health 
Well, I think it has and it hasn't. I think there is still a reluctance even within um, quite progressive evangelical churches to talk about uh, mental health as a condition. In fact, I had an incident recently where somebody stood up uh, in a church I know well and talked about their struggles with depression. And there was almost a collective sigh going around the congregation. And afterwards, we were approached by many people who said, that was incredible, thank you for sharing that. I've struggled so long. Um, so whilst they're, they're, you know, out in society, there is an increasing willingness to talk about it, I, I still think um, that, you know, there is a reluctance to be honest and truthful and upfront about it, because it's still seen as some type of sign of weakness. Yes, and, and, and I think of some examples of celebrities who've actually come out, as it were, uh, as an Arsenal supporter, a long-suffering Arsenal supporter, uh, only recently per Mertesacker, um, who was the captain of the club, came out and talked about his challenge with, um, with depression, with the fear of going and playing for Arsenal and, and what he's had to do to, to overcome that. So we probably are getting a bit better than those times when we thought depression and illness was simply could be prayed away or it represented a sin that we carried. Is, is that fair? Though, yes, though I, I was actually thinking about this earlier. I, I do wonder whether some of the celebrities coming out in a way is helpful because um, I think it brings it out into public discourse more. But it probably doesn't harm their standing, if you like, because it shows them to be real people. Um, in fact, it probably does their public image good. Um, I think in a much more, for the ordinary man on the, or woman on the street, um, admitting to it actually probably has many more pitfalls than it does for a celebrity, where ultimately it may not damage their, their public standing. I suppose, Dunya, this is where the community comes in, that if you've got a strong community that you're confident about, that you can actually open up to, and, and it provides that love, really, that enables you just to open yourself out to your own vulnerabilities, because we've all got it. I mean, you know, I, I, I recognise it in myself, carrying the burdens of one thing and another, and sometimes you, you wake up very, very heavy, um, and you need to think, who is it who loves you? Who is it who, 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 who's with you, who can give you that kind of solace? And I think for you, that will, you, you touched on the importance of community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think besides the anxiety of the modern world that we live in and all the pressures that we have, um, to fulfill with expectations. Um, there's also this, this sense of solitude, I think, that, that is, I don't know if it's a product of the modern world or if it's just always been a part of human consciousness. Um, and I think this is also at the core of a lot of these, these, um, these mental illnesses. Um, and I think community you know, does something to kind of appease that, that sense of I'm alone in this world. You know, and that's why family is so important, social networks, um, and really community. Yes, I think faith communities are very important, especially if you identify very strongly with your religious sense of self. But I think any community, really, it's, it's any community that you build um, that can give you that sense of support where you feel connected to other human beings. I think really that, that's what it is that, that, that most humans need to, to feel comfortable. I was just thinking as you were saying that uh, that um, community can sometimes also hinder, I think, um, because uh, it's, 
if we are giving a, a particular narrative within our, our faith communities that life has to be about something perfect or something good or you know living the best life we can that sort of thing um, that sounds a bit Oprah-esque but you know what I mean you know that sense of kind of um, perfection aiming for it's perfection isn't it it can be I think. Communities have been, and faith communities we're the worst in terms yeah. of expectation in terms of behavior I mean don't we add to mental ill health I think we can because we can make people feel like they can't talk about the real stuff. Something that's been, we're just uh, recording this just after the royal wedding over the weekend, and something that I thought was really interesting, along with probably a lot of people in the country, has been the sort of the, this puncturing of the bubble by particularly Harry and William this year, about, and Harry in particular, about mental health. But then I was thinking about the sermon that Bishop Curry gave, and again, there was something about the reality of it and the kind of imperfection of it. Um, as well, you know, and his, he was getting carried away and the sort of, it's quite threatening whenever reality intrudes on a sort of perfect narrative, I think, sometimes. And but also I want to push it a bit harder because I've come across instances where faith communities put such a lot of pressure on young people to behave in a certain way or particularly on women to marry or to have children or if you don't fit into these categories, then you, you really are... Uh, your troubled mind is only more troubled and and I don't know how w w what to do about it what we should be doing about it should we be challenging it more or should we accept that that's how it is and we have to fit into these norms I mean help me Mark you know true communities have to accept that there are a wide range of individuals that, that make them up and we are all made differently we think differently um, the sum of our experiences that bring us to this point make us different I think to interpret any set of scriptures in such a prescriptive way that, like you say, it provides a suffocating or, or drowning environment has not got to be mentally healthy. But I think it's taken us a long time to get to the point where we're willing to even think about that. And for some groups that is not possible because they, they, they cannot make that interpretation such that they say, here is the intent behind what is written. And we've also got to remember that most of our scriptures were written thousands of years ago. Um, and whilst I'm not a revisionist and not saying throw them out, we do interpret each generation, interprets them in the light of what you know out, outside of that. And so that must lead us to, to think very carefully about how we interpret scripture. Well, let me just read one um, piece of scripture that I hadn't come across before. Um, today's pod um, and um, I don't know what to make of it see if you can help me this is from the book of Samuel the first book of Samuel chapter 21 it's about King David who faked mental illness and was accused of being insane by the king of Gath and I quote David greatly feared Achish king of Gath so he disguised his sanity before them and he acted insanely in their hands and he scribbled on the doors of the gate and he let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And it's remarkable, it's so real. I mean, you know, we tend to, you mentioned the Royal Wedding, beautiful Song of Solomon that was read and, uh, but there's something so, you know, 
challenging and difficult King David, the great, the poet, the singer, the, the father of King Solomon, the, the progenitor of the seed of David and the Messiah, their acts as a madman. Yeah, and I was thinking about, um, obviously come back to that, but it was when I hear of David, I think about a lot of the work that I've done with people with, uh, you know, who's struggling with their mental health on the Psalms. You know, and the reality of that, you know, he's acting here, but actually there's plenty of the Psalms where there's real madness going on, there's real trouble going on. Great you know. trouble. What, what, what can you, you think know. of, for uh, example? Uh, well, lots of questions to God. Why are my enemies prospering? Why is this not, you know, um, they, I, I can't sleep. I lie on my, you know, there's lots and lots of, lots of examples of where um, just the, 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 the person is wrestling. And, and not able to find peace, not able to find that certainty, whatever that means, you know. It's all full of uncertainty, really, and, and disease. It's the same in the Quran, don't you? Are there passages that really um, reflect this grappling with life, this uncertainty? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for example, this is an interesting, well, it's, it's the anecdote of Abraham when he's going to, or no, when he's on the mountain and he asks God, you know, God, please just give me a sign of your existence, you know, and then I think it's that God um, sends an eagle. I cannot remember exactly the, the, the details, but before he does that, there's the question of, are you, are you questioning me, Abraham? And he says, please, only for my certainty, God, I'm sorry, you know, but it's for my own certainty. And of course, he sends the sign. And, and so, yeah, I think this is an example of how just this idea of certainty, of, of knowing truth, is so difficult for us as human beings. And, and, and even God in, in, these, in these texts is allowing for that. You know, he's allowing for us to have doubt. And I think that's important. And I think that's a problem with this idea of, of communities who are so rigid in the way they interpret these scriptures and texts that... They forget sometimes that, you know, it's okay to be a little fluid. It's okay to allow your people to have some doubts, to have some questions, you know, to question God and to question these narratives. And I think, yeah, I think unfortunately we're not doing that though. And it is causing some distress, I think, especially among young people who have so much going on externally, um, meeting so many different people in this ever-increasing diverse world. So I think there is a problem there and I think religious leaders need to recognize that. You're listening to Encounter, the podcast from the Wolf Institute. My name is Ed Kessler, and with me today are Mark Strivens of Cambridge Street Pastors, Dunya Habash from the Wolf Institute, and Ruth Adams, a former trustee of Cogwheel. I'd like to explore what contribution specifically faith can make to a troubled mind. So not so much just the estate where you allow the interactions to take place, um, but actually, you know, what might be called the, the encounter between the couch and the pew. So do our communities allow for that encounter? You talked about the sighs, Mark, and uh, the sighing when somebody talked about their own, um, their own troubles. Um, I wonder whether we've lost that ability. We're having to rediscover that ability as communities of faith to help people, um, partly because of the desire for uh, perfection um, and partly because we just want to put that out of sight, that vulnerability. Yet Jesus was somebody who went out to the most troubled. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And I think where this has worked best in my, my personal experience is in smaller groups where you've understood and trusted the people that are with you 
um, that's allowed you to become vulnerable because let's face it, it's very difficult to become vulnerable in front of a thousand people than it is in front of 10 people who you know well. In the various places I have been, those have been the most, the, the kind of subgroups of that wider community. Having said that, I was part of a community, uh, a Christian community in the States, where the lead pastor would stand up and talk openly about mental health issues that he had had, serious mental health issues. And I think that vulnerability that he was able to put himself through was extremely powerful. And I think it drew a lot of people to that church because it was not someone saying, uh, you know, perhaps in, in uh, stark contrast to some of the preachers of big churches in, in America that you come across where everything's lovely and, and rosy and perfect, that he was willing to stand up and say very clearly, I have got and had and struggle with mental health issues. In fact, one of his fra favorite phrases was, if, if you're alive, you have issues which I thought was actually, you know, fabulous. And there's Rick Warren, isn't there, in the States, a very the famous yeah. mega church preacher, incredibly successful, who also had to grapple with uh, trauma in his own family and the, and the suicide of a child and how that affected him. Yeah, and I, you know, I think like, like uh, the uh, church community I was part of, I think for him it, it made it so real to him, as my former pastor's uh, struggles with mental health did, that it meant that he felt impelled to, to be real to his congregation about it. Because it's not something you could just sweep under the carpet. No, it is about being real, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's showing that the flawed human condition that we all suffer, don't we, to a certain extent from depression? Um, and perhaps we're, we're, we're more or less of, uh, open about it? Yeah, I think I was thinking about leadership, I mean, telling stories is great, but I think also creating structures and uh, within the worshipping co context, creating opportunities for people to be real. <laughs> now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's talking all the time about their own experience, but reality can come through just giving space and people being able to be who they are, where they are. And um, I think worship is a really important part to play in that, actually. What about the question of um, the abuse that our communities are responsible for, whether that's uh, physical abuse or mental abuse. Um, I suppose what I want to tease out is when religion becomes part of the problem, not the solution. Um, and, and how do we tackle that? So are you thinking particularly about safeguarding issues or are you thinking? Well, safeguarding is a practical response, yeah. but I just wonder whether if we're always talking about salvation can only be achieved through me, whoever I am, um, or whether we're talking about obeying certain laws and rituals and commands because that's what was taught to our leader at wherever it was thousands of years ago on Mount Sinai. I just wonder whether we're actually contributing to that burden, that, that, that troubled mind, that, that, that the faith actually is not the balm, um, but is the, is the cause of actually f a fundamental problem. And I, it, it, it's about how do we hear the stories from people who are experiencing that, I think. You need to be able to uh, signal that you want to listen. Um, there's a new, there's not a new practice, but there's a practice that lots of churches are now taking up called dwelling in the word, which is a very different way of interacting with scripture, which is about listening to the other. And uh, I'm very interested in that as a general uh, kind of culture thing at the minute, uh, but that, that Christian churches uh, develop that sense of actually all the time inviting listening 
inviting someone else to speak. So I think actually that could be a good corrective. And that doesn't just mean within your own faith community. Anyone you meet, if you ask them to speak and you ask to listen to them, rather than first speaking yourself. Mark, I saw you scribbling something there. Share, share. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking about there was a, somebody came up, and I don't know who it was, that there was this thing about years ago that someone talked about faith groups being wanting people to behave and to believe, and then they would belong. Whereas really, you know, that's, I think, countercultural to the way that um, Jesus acted in the Bible. He met people where they were, listened to them, and they belonged immediately to the situation where he was. And so these days I would want to invite people into a faith group, learn about them, and I'd rather that God did the work rather than me. But to a certain extent, as a man of faith and, and, and somebody who works with street pastors, dealing with very vulnerable people often, how that plays out in your work, is it just listening? I'm being... Uh, as Ruth was saying, and sort of, or is there more to it than that? The mere fact that we're there is partly a demonstration of faith. It's a demonstration of our commitment to all people uh, without judgment, as, as far as is humanly possible. We don't generally communicate on faith issues unless we're asked, and so then it becomes part of a conversation or a dialogue that's initiated by the, by the person we're helping. We are not there to evangelise, to, to stand on a corner and tell people about the Bible, though I'm more than happy to explain our rationale for why we do what we do. But it's very much initiated by the person we're helping if they want to know. If they don't want to know, that's absolutely fine. Dunya, I started at the beginning and I mentioned that the World Health Organization talked about depression being perhaps the global illness, possibly the most important illness um, in the 21st century, as we are now. Um, the work that you do, um, you're doing this as research on music as a, as a means of encounter and learning about one another. Are there other uh, things that you've learned um, that you think can actually help uh, a troubled mind? Um, yeah, well, I think as a practicing musician, um, music, art, um, anything to do with aesthetics and beauty, I think is something that is calming to a human being. Um, you know, even just walking through nature. Why, why does nature draw us so much and relax us? And I think it's because of that, that the beauty, the aesthetics of beauty that really relaxes us. So I'm a huge champion of, of using the arts to do that. And I know there are a lot of initiatives in the mental health world that, that use art with conflict resolution or um, other kinds of psychotherapy. So definitely, I mean, what I, the project I'm working on now is looking more at identity and how art fits into cultural identity, and which is another huge theme that we could talk about in terms of, uh, you know, the importance of identity to the human spirit and human consciousness. And so, yeah, I think, I think learning more about, about your cultural identity definitely gives you a better sense of self, which is also very important, I think, to, you know, uh, affirming yourself in this world and moving in this world socially. 
One of the areas that we've gone around the houses a bit is this question of the relationship between science and religion. Now, we actually will be devoting a podcast to the question in general, but I wonder, Mark, if, if we can just explore that specifically to the question of a troubled mind. And, and in particular, to what extent um, you think depression we've discovered is hereditary or something that's genetically uh, connected? And, and, and what's your view? I think as a, um, as a scientist uh, with a medical research background, since the genomic revolution in the 80s, there has been increasing uh, evidence, now strong evidence, of the heritability of uh, depression and other um, psychiatric illnesses. These are now quite strong links um, outside of specific syndromes or specific um, disease areas. And I think now we have to interpret what we see in scripture and how we um, approach that in the light of that evidence. What sort of things in scripture are you thinking of? If you look at um, depression, it could be seen as a, a spiritual thing, but it's also a medical thing. And as a medical thing, it has a physical manifestation in bodily function, in chemical balance. And I think there is a danger where you could over-spiritualize depression uh, and not treat it as a heritable condition, as an illness. I'd now like to turn to some research that has been undertaken by a Cambridge academic called Sriya Aya, who suggests that um, religion and religiosity can contribute to coping skills, I suppose, um, and to increasing one's self-esteem, which to a certain extent, I don't know whether one can say vaccinates or protects us a little bit from, from, from troubled minds. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure how she's defining religiosity, but I think in terms of faith, having deep faith that God is good and everything that comes from God is good, even the bad things that happen to us, even we just can't understand them right now, but later, surely we'll know why this had to play out this way and there's goodness in it. I think someone who really deeply believes that, yeah, deals a lot better with very difficult, challenging situations that, that happen in life. And I've seen that, you know, in, in friends and family who do have that very deep belief that, you know, in Arabic we say khair, you know, that khair comes from God and whatever happens is, is khair. And yet, to me personally, sometimes challenging, doubting, self-doubting is part of who I am too. I see that coming from my religiosity as being a Jew um, and that, that very challenge. It was interesting, you touched on earlier the story of Abraham um, and then receiving this sign and giving him that confidence, that certainty. And yet in, in, in the Bible, there are many times when, um, you know, Abraham's often questioning God. Um, and that's seen as almost a model that we should be questioning God. Moses questioned God. Job, par excellence, questioned God. So it's interesting. I think there are these different dimensions to our faith traditions, some that call for certainty um, and some that actually call for doubt, even though in the end you have no choice if you're a person of faith but to fall into the, uh, into the arms of God. I, I worry a bit about... Um uh, a sense of uh, needing to anaesthetise ourselves uh, against anything bad. You know, mental ill health is a horrible thing and can be a horrible thing, but it also can be a realistic reaction to life circumstances. And if people are all the time trying to not 
uh, react, you know, in ways, you know, when you see people who have had horrific things happen to them and then are struggling with them, you think, well, that's fine <laughs> because actually you've had a horrific thing happen. It's normal and it's natural and it's, it's healthy to, to be going through anguish because actually it was anguish filled. And, and so uh, we, we, we kind of, uh, well-being is great, but sometimes there's life when actually our well-being has been disrupted and, and therefore it's just about allowing people to be real. And we talked about the Psalms and that for me is really helpful. But also it's where you sit, isn't it? Because where Dunya sits, her perception of what she sees will be different from where you sit. Absolutely. Ruth. And so allowing for these different perceptions, these different places that we sit, we have to somehow hold them all together. Absolutely. And I think having good foundations, of course, will help us. I mean, I totally agree with that. So it, it's everything, I think, is, 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 all, is all acceptable in this area. <laughs> with me to discuss our troubled minds are Mark Strivens of Cambridge Street Pastors, Dunya Habash of the Wolf Institute, and Ruth Adams, a priest in the Diocese of Ely and a trustee, a former trustee of Cogwheel, a Christian mental health charity. Well, we're coming towards the end and I've quoted from um, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and Dunya's given us a passage from the Quran. I'm now gonna give you one from the New Testament. For his part, Jesus drove seven demons out of Mary Magdalene, and he gave the 12 disciples authority to cast out demons. In response, his friends, and I quote, set out to take charge of him because people were saying, he's gone mad, or as I prefer the King James version, he is beside himself. So this is something that we've been dealing with from perhaps the beginning of time, the question of madness, of insanity, of a troubled mind. I wonder whether the question of the vision or the revelation sight seems to be such an important term within our faith communities. You see things, you reveal things, um, you have foresight, you have perception, you have hindsight. But I wonder whether, um, Actually, the concept of, of mystical visions, a long-term vision, even the vision of the end time feeds into our troubled mind today. I'm not sure if this is going to answer your question, but, but I, you know, this topic got me thinking about dreams uh, in Islam, in the Islamic tradition, how important dreams are. For example, I have a lot of Muslim friends that will often make really big life decisions based off of you know, what they had in a dream. Or there's a special prayer called Salat al-Istikhara, which is a prayer you do when you do need to make a very difficult decision or choice. And um, a lot of Muslims believe that you usually have a dream afterwards and, and the dream will reveal something to you. So I think definitely there is a lot of power in this idea of the mystical, the unseen world um, playing a role in how you should behave or, or, or decide things in this world. And I think for, for a lot of people, that gives them comfort. And it's because it goes back to that idea of certainty, that there's, there's, I can put my finger on something in this world and move forward, you know? Um, of course, for, for other people, um, like for me, I, I don't really believe that I should make a big life decision just because I had a vision in a dream. Um, so it just it depends, I guess, on, on your relationship to, to these kinds of things. But yeah, I do think the unseen world, though, is, is a powerful idea and concept. And it just depends on, on each believer and their relationship to that. I worry about visions a bit, though, um, that, 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 you know, the vision I may have may not allow for you to be who you are. Is that a problem? 
Um, I guess it depends on what it's saying, really. <laughs> um, I, I think for me, um, this idea of the unseen world, as Sunya put it, was, um, it, is just the right way to put it. There is an unseen world. There is a dimension which we don't directly perceive, and the Bible talks about that. Um, I think for me, um, I would always be looking for some type of confirmation to a dream or a vision either from myself or from somebody else close to me. Um, the New Testament talks especially about testing um, supernatural words of knowledge or supernatural um, uh, visions. Um, you think about Jesus in the wilderness and being sort of tested, is that what you're thinking about? Well, no, about the or? New Testament talks, um, the, uh, the letters of Paul talk about testing um, words of knowledge, for example, supernatural um, uh, promptings, if you like, in order to test their validity. And those might be given to yourself or might be given to somebody else. And I'd much rather trust that than necessarily think that my own mind could be uh, firm enough or stable enough to interpret all that I'm given from that unseen world. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with, with, with that, uh, Mark. And um, what's interesting when we have visions or when we have dreams um, is also the impact it has on us. So um, uh, we talk about the fruit <laughs> using the New Testament uh, letters uh, that you were referring to, Mark. We talk about the fruit, don't we, of, of an action. So what's the impact it has on us? But when you were talking about mysticism, I instantly went to Mother Julian, so Julian of Norwich, who lived in a very troubled political time herself and was also physically and mentally quite anguished. And, uh, you know, her looking of, at the hazelnut and deciding that all oh, shall be well and just knowing that it, there is something about that knowing, that anchor of knowing that all shall be well, um, which is very mystical, but also incredibly simple and is not taking people off on, mat, on sort of slight sort of um, wild goose chases around things. But is, so sometimes uh, mysticism can help us ground us in an earthly reality, ironically. But yet at the same time, it can be the end of the world is nigh. You it know, can, I, exactly. I know one of my favourite definitions of mysticism, which is a mist leading to a schism. Mm. Well, we're coming towards the end of, uh, uh, of this podcast. And I just wonder, and I'll start with you, Mark, if you were to give us one piece of advice um, and to help us if we notice within our family or in our close circle of friends somebody who is um, clearly troubled, absolutely troubled, whether it's mental or emotional or spiritual, what advice would you give us? Um, journey with them. Um, whatever their condition, whatever they're going through, um, stick with them in um, a sense of trust and relationship. Ruth? I mean, I think something similar. I, help them see that they're not, that it's okay. It's you know one of people. Someone's big fear often when they're very troubled is that they are going mad, and people will say, "I think I'm going mad," uh, and you say, "Well, just tell me what's going on for you," you know, and and normalise that for them because ex people who who are feeling troubled will often distance themselves uh, and worry about how they're going to seem, the effect that they'll have on other people. So create um, connection, I would say, and don't be afraid to ask the questions. I heard someone again say the other night on the radio something that I've long known, felt as well, which is, is don't be afraid to ask someone if, they're, if they've thought about killing themselves because you're not going to make them want to do it. 
And if they have, it will give them a, a release from that terrible isolation of struggling with those feelings and a chance to actually talk about it. And uh, isolation is probably the worst thing for someone with mental health problems. Because it is quite frightening, isn't it? Yes. If I'm the person um, noticing somebody else's troubled mind and I don't quite know what to do, and I've got these customs and practices where you don't ask personal questions. Um, so it takes some courage, doesn't it, to actually be the one to initiate. Are you all right? Or I think it's, it takes huge courage, but if you've got love for that person, that will be the thing that will help you if you continue to remember, this is why I'm doing it, this is what I want to do, and you keep going towards the person and, and, and know why you're doing it. And actually, being as least anxious as you can, it's probably very helpful. <laughs> so even if you're feeling worried and stressed, actually finding a way to, to be as calm as you can and to be as loving as you can, I think will be very useful. Because one, one of the things I notice about you, Ruth, and, and the listeners may hear it, but I can see it, which is that you smile a lot. Okay. That you, 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 you look, at, look, look at me in the eye. I mean, Mark, you look at me too, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> Ruth smiles at me. Okay. And, and, um, and that takes some confidence in who you are, mm. doesn't it? I think so. I think it, it is very helpful. We all need to make sure that we've, we've got a bit of a sense of who we are. That certainly, we can bounce out of that. And that's why when we were thinking about Cogwheel Sunday, the John 10, 10 reading that we chose, it was really appropriate. You know, I've come that you may have life and life in its fullness. I think, you know, looking after ourselves, finding fullness of life for ourselves then means that we can bounce into other people's encounter with other people with um, confidence, you know, and, and sort of that anxiety that we all carry, that we are not good enough or we don't know enough. Uh, if we can somehow deal with that, that will help us with others, I think. And Dunya, what advice do you have? Yeah, I think uh, Ruth uh, said a key word, which is love, I think. I think um, when you have loved ones or anyone close to you and you see them going through struggling through something so difficult. I think that the best thing is to be open in your love to them. And sometimes that means doing things for for that person that might be taboo for you. For example, suggesting maybe we should go see a therapist, you know. Uh, maybe we should try this particular thing. And that takes a lot of courage to really bounce out of those social constructs that you grew up with. But I think that's why love is so powerful and why it's so important in, in dealing with these kinds of things. The Power of Love seems a perfect way to end this podcast. I'm Ed Kessler. My thanks to Ruth Adams, Mark Strivens and Dunya Habash. Next time, with the World Cup looming, God help us, we'll be talking about religion and sport. Is God on your, I mean, my side? You can follow us on Facebook, email your thoughts and questions to encounterpodcast at wolf.cam.ac.uk or leave a review on iTunes.